0: Welcome to the Our Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. I'll, I'll, I'll share a little bit about myself before I, I, I really do any teaching. I live in Glasgow. I was born there in 1961, so I'll be 56 in April, just in case you're wondering. And <clears throat> I grew up in, in a part of Glasgow where Phil knows some of the places that I would know from Glasgow. <laughs> um, but a lot of gangs, a lot of violence. And so I grew up with that as normal life violence and drugs and all kinds of stuff. And my dad was disabled. Just after I was born, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Uh, so effectively, we, we were a one parent family with myself, my brother, and sister. And I just. I had to get, my way of escaping from that was, was to read books and, and learn things. And as I grew up, I, my experience was that a lot of praise, a lot of recognition came from my academic ability, my ability to achieve educationally. You know, get a good report card. I used to get a, a card home every every year with your subjects on it and how well you had done and comments from the teacher. And I learned that if I did very well, not only did I get recognition and praise, but I also got some money. <laughs> Back then, it was two it was, it was Bob. That's 10p. <laughs> um, and so I pursued intellectual growth. I pursued um, knowledge. It was a way of protecting myself because if I could display and demonstrate knowledge, it could intimidate people because it looked as though I knew more than them and they didn't want to appear stupid, so it kept people at a distance. And I, it came easy to me because I've always been quite inquisitive. I've, I've always questioned things. You know, I remember when I was at Bible school, uh, if, if the lecturers would say something that no one was very certain of, everyone would look at me to be the one to, to say, excuse me, um, I'm not sure I agree with that. <laughs> I'm not sure I said it as politely as that, but... <laughs> And and that was great, you know, this intellectual growth that uh, reading a wide variety of books and, and subject matter, but the problem was my emotional development didn't go at the same rate. <laughs> Emotionally, uh, I was way behind my intellectual abilities. Because of the home situation with my dad being disabled. Uh, having three children it, because my mum kept my dad at home then she couldn't work my dad wasn't working so we were quite poor as well and this chaotic world and an uncertain world just really made me feel insecure, unsafe it's like the the world just wasn't a safe place my mum sent me to elocution lessons which is why I don't have such a strong Glasgow accent um, but where I grew up, no one spoke properly. No one spoke like this where I grew up. And so it just made me a target for bullies. So I've got all this instability and uncertainty at home, and then outside of the home, I'm looking over my shoulder all the time because there are people gonna beat me up or or threaten to. So I was living with violence or the threat of violence most every day of my life, you know. Um, I mean, by the time I was 12 years old, I'd, I'd, been hit, I'd had kni- knives held on me three or four times, but butchers knives, stiletto knives held at my throat, and goodness knows how I, I avoided getting injured, but I did. And so it was a very unstable, chaotic life. Um, and I hid in my knowledge, I hid in books. And as I grew up, it became quite a source of pride to demonstrate how much I knew to correct people when they have got details wrong and now I don't care. But, but then it was very important because it made me feel for a moment more than I actually thought I was. It made me feel more important, um, more superior. It gave me a moment of security because I, it gave me this impression that I, I feel better than them because they don't want to admit, they don't understand what I'm talking about. And when I became a believer, I became a Christian in November, 1985. Uh, well, I went to church with my wife and her brother was preaching. And I remember just thinking, I, I don't, I didn't pray a prayer. You know, everyone talks about, I prayed this prayer and said, sorry, God. And, I, I didn't really do that. I just said, OK, God, I've done sex and drugs and rock and roll and politics. There's nothing else left. Here I am. <laughs> and, and he came and he met me there. It really spooked me. You know, i had grown up believing that there was a God, but kind of not really much more than that. I used to think God was a spaceman. I read a book by a man called Eric von Dineken. Back in the seventies, went to the cinema to see the documentary, and his his th- theory was that God was a spaceman, and what we called miracles was just alien technology. And when I was ten years old, that made perfect sense. So that's when I believed God was a spaceman. But then, in that church in 1985, he met me, and it really spooked me, <laughs> um, because before I left that church. I knew I had to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. She's now my wife, but but that really that was a crazy thought for me. You know, that was how I lived my life: sex, drugs, rock and roll. You know, I took drugs, I sold drugs. I I shouldn't say that on the microphone. Never mind. Um, (laughs) It was a long time ago. (laughs) Um, But but I just knew that that's what I had to do. So. I know I'm digressing, but that's okay. we've got all day. Um, I remember standing in her mother's kitchen after that church service, saying to her, I I have something I need to tell you. And she's saying, well, I've got something I need to tell you. Now, this freaked me right out, because she said the same thing to me that I wanted to say to her, that we had to stop sleeping together. That really freaked me out, that really spooked me, Um, because I thought, maybe God's real. Because I, because I don't think I'd really, I believe there was a God, but, I, but my concept of him and of being real, I don't think I really had a concept of that. And so suddenly I'm being presented with a God who's, who's real, who communicates with you. That, I would not experienced that before, not knowingly anyway. And so I came into this Christian world where as I go to meetings, I go to church services, I, I begin to understand that, that the way you become spiritual, the way you grow in Christianity is to get a lot of Bible knowledge. And so I began to memorize the scriptures and eventually I went to Bible school, 1988, and I spent three years there. And, and so I just I did what I had been doing before, I accumulated knowledge because it made me feel safe and secure to, Know that I, I knew more than you, or I could. I knew more scripture than you. I understood theology better than you, and and that's how I just lived my Christian life. Because the, to me, from the very beginning, I saw that that was how Christianity and spirituality was measured, by the accumulation of knowledge about the Bible, about God. But a few years ago, I read something that that really kind of changed, began to change my, my whole concept of that. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter eight, Paul says in, in the first two verses, he's he's speaking to the Corinthian church about their, their love feasts where it's all a mess and everyone's indulging themselves. And he's speaking about, about people's conscience struggling with eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And he said, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Then he said this really interesting thing. He said, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. And that, that verse really brought me up short. You know, Paul is talking about knowledge. We know that we can do this, we know that we can do that. And, and he's speaking to a Greek audience mainly. in in Corinth, and they understood knowledge to be the supreme, or the pursuit of knowledge, the the philosophical debates was how they lived their lives. And their life, generally speaking, in in Greek culture, the, the, the pursuit of knowledge was the highest goal, which was what I had dedicated my life to, the pursuit of knowledge. And they they thought that having this knowledge made them supreme and superior to all the other nations. That's why, you know, they use the language like whether you're Greek or barbarian, because they saw themselves as cultured, as civilized, knowledgeable, educated, and the rest of the world as ignorant savages. And I guess those of us who have put our pride and our reputation and the acquiring of knowledge have done the same thing really. We may not vocalise it that way but we have stood in a place where we have thought we are the cultured and educated ones and the rest of you are just barbarians because you don't know what we know and therefore you're not as educated and as sophisticated as we are. But Paul suddenly comes to them and says this way of living this way of thinking is not how you grow spiritually this is not how you you come to know spiritual reality by the accumulation of knowledge you know you can accumulate all the knowledge and think you know everything but he says the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know and that was quite shocking for me um, because I had lived my whole life that way and he's saying, having knowledge and information about God is not the same as knowing God. And I guess I began to look at, well, how did, how did I come to know God? And really it was through the accumulation of knowledge and information. And when I began to think about it, I thought how ridiculous that is. You know, I, imagine, you, you haven't met my wife Fiona, but imagine I gave you a, a book about her that told you how beautiful she is, even had pictures of you know blonde curls, beautiful smile, and told you all about what a great cook she is, how generous a heart she has, how gentle and sensitive and encouraging she is to others, and all of those wonderful qualities that she carries. And you ask me more questions about her, and I tell you more about my experience of, of Fiona, and you can say, well, I know Fiona McDonald. Well, the truth is you don't. All you know is information about Fiona MacDonald. And so many of us have lived our Christian lives that way. We've read the book. We've listened to people talking about him. And we say that that's how we know God. But the fact is we don't know him. We only know about him. And so many of us are living our Christian lives knowing about God and not encountering him. we use our knowledge to keep him at a distance, to keep him away from our hearts. That's how I was living my life. Oh, I would have encounters with God. I would have experiences of his presence, but it's not the same as, to know someone is not more than a passing acquaintance, biblically speaking. To know someone is to experience their heart, to have intimacy. And so the reason, I can say I know Fiona MacDonald because I've opened my heart to her and said, this is who I really am. And I found that she doesn't back off. But what she does in return is open her heart to me and say, well, this is the real me. And to have intimacy with God is to bring our hearts to a place where we open our hearts to him and say, this is the real me, God. This is what's really in here. And what I'm discovering is he does the same thing he opens his heart and says, John, this is the real me. And I'm discovering he's not who I thought he was as he's revealing the depth of his heart to me. And these guys that Paul is writing to, they had they'd fallen under the same assumption that I had. They had assumed that the possession of knowledge about God was the same as knowing him. But there was a knowing that the mind can't grasp. You know, if you want to navigate through life, there, there is information, there is knowledge that you need to possess. You know, If you want clean clothes, you need to know how the washing machine works. You, you, it doesn't, you, they don't clean themselves by intuition. You need to know. If you're going for an operation, you, you don't want a plumber to, to come into the operating theatre. You want a surgeon. And <laughs> So there is knowledge that's necessary to navigate your way through life. But Paul's not speaking about that. He's speaking about spirituality. He's speaking about knowing God. He's speaking about the kingdom. And he's saying, if you think you know something spiritual because you have studied it, because you've learned something at an intellectual level, then you don't yet know as you ought to know. You've missed the point, is what Paul's saying. He's saying all you have is information about something. And possessing information is not the same as experiencing someone. And I think much of our Christianity is based upon our intellectual acquisition. The knowledge that we've built up, the, the amount of scripture that we've memorized, the, the songs we sing. You know, love the songs we sing this morning, but that's where most people get their theology from, from songs and novels and books. And I have to say, songwriters don't make good theologians. <laughs> <clears throat> they write wonderful songs, but they're not great theologians. <laughs> and we've based our Christianity on, on acquiring sufficient amounts of knowledge, and when we have reached a, a, some sort of critical mass, we say we know God. When really all we do is know about Him. And Paul says, Well, you know what happens when you've acquired that critical mass of knowledge? You just become proud. That's why he says knowledge puffs up. And that was true in my case. Knowledge made me proud because I possessed things and I had the ability to learn things that that other people couldn't learn. And I think it's this pride we take in our knowledge that makes it difficult for us to come to a place of truly experiencing intimacy with God because we think we've already arrived. And Paul is saying... If you're in that place, then you do not yet know as you ought to know. You saying you don't know God, you don't understand spirituality the way you were created to understand it, the way you're created to know him. For me, um, yeah, I've built my life on that. And when you begin to realise that that's a false foundation, that can be quite devastating to discover that you've built your life on the wrong thing. And so many people refuse to acknowledge that they may have something wrong, their understanding may be incorrect, because it means they've built their life on the wrong foundations. And so often when you're discussing theology or you're discussing life with people and you present a a view that to you is very obvious and someone can stand in, in your face and say, you're wrong, I'm not going there. It's usually because they're terrified that what they've built their life on is a false foundation. And so a lot of people could present me with things about God their experience of God and I if it didn't fit into my understanding my th- thinking my intellectual understanding then I would dismiss it and I probably dismissed a lot of what Father was trying to speak to me over the years because it didn't fit in with how I had built my life and what I would built my life upon and I think we've done that in church we've built our theology and our doctrine upon the information we've acquired and we've said to people if you acquire this information if you learn this, then you can say you know God. And yet the Bible doesn't say that. It's interesting. Jesus said to the Pharisees, just, you know, they focused on the scriptures. That, that was, that the scriptures was the most important thing for them. They built the, the, the nation upon the foundation of, of their understanding of scripture. You know, and, and during the, the the period between the end of, of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, that's when the Pharisees kind of grew, and and they grew out of a desire to stop Greek influence from destroying Jewish culture and religion. So it was a it was a good desire, because you know Greek um, culture was taking over the world at at that time, and they are they created a, a group of people originally called the Hasidim, um, to preserve Israel's culture and religion and and protect it from the invasion of Greek culture. And so it was a desire to to preserve the things of God. And yet Jesus said this to them in John chapter 5. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's saying, you know, you, you've, you've, you've acquired all of this knowledge. I think, you know, Moses had, ten, had written 10 laws and the Pharisees wrote about 600 laws to explain those 10. <laughs> about how you should live a good Jewish life. <clears throat> and yet when the one whom those scriptures speak about and prophesy about stands in front of them, they want to kill him. I wonder when Paul's writing that in Corinthians about um, not yet knowing as you ought to. I wonder if he's thinking about himself and his fellow Pharisees. Because from probably five or six years old, Paul had begun to dedicate his life to understanding the scriptures, memorising. He would would have memorised, by the time he was 12, he would have memorised the first five books of the Bible, recited off by heart. And... So he, he, he really had dedicated his life to the Jewish culture, Jewish religion, to serving God, to preserve the ways of God and pass on the ways of God to, to others. And he said that he had surpassed all the young men of, of his age. So all the young guys he studied with, he was by far superior to all of them. He was zealous, passionate for God. And his passion and zeal Turned him into a murderer. That's what he did, didn't he? He went around killing Christians to please God. He was there supervising the stoning of Stephen. You know, he wasn't just a young man who was here, you're, you're rubbish, you just hold the courts. That's not what was happening. He was supervising, he was overseeing Stephen's death. And then he was given a letter. From the, the chief priest to go out throughout the world, jailing and killing Christians. You see, he thought he knew God, he knew God's ways, he, God's will, he, he knew what God wanted according to his studies and his traditions that he'd grown up in. But it led to him killing people and thinking he was doing God's will. man do not murder exactly <laughs> exactly that's crazy isn't it <laughs> yes. he knows those commandments don't murder and yet it's exactly what he's doing he's murdering yeah and I wonder if he's when he's writing that scripture in Corinthians if he's thinking of himself and thinking man I thought I knew everything but I didn't know as I ought to I didn't know as I ought to until I get knocked off that donkey <laughs> And we need to be very careful when our focus is purely on accumulating knowledge. You see, we we think we need to know the scriptures in order to know God, but actually we need to experience God and let the scriptures explain our experience (laughs) because that's all the Bible is. It's a record of people experiencing God and they wrote it down because when the disciples were walking about on earth, they didn't have the New Testament to read and study. They wrote the New Testament. <laughs> had better, though. They had the Holy Spirit. They had the actual person in front of them. But when he was gone, you know, there still was no New Testament. All they did was experience God and write down their experience. And we've turned it the other way around. We we look to gather the information and live by the information when actually we're meant to live in relationship. And what's written here explains our relationship and what we experience in that place of intimacy. And we love to keep things out there because out there and, and up here keeps things away from the heart. The real you your heart is the real you and so we do all of these things we acquire the knowledge we we memorise the scriptures and we think God's pleased with that when all the time he doesn't care what you know he doesn't care what information you have he doesn't care what how intellectual you are he said to Samuel didn't he Samuel goes to anoint the next king of Israel and he sees David's older brother Eliab. And he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He's big, he's strong, he's handsome, he's a soldier. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's why he could say of David, this is a man after my own heart. And yet David was an adulterer, a murderer, a terrible father. And yet God still says, this is a man after my own heart. He's not looking at the things that David does. He's looking at his heart and he sees something there that captures his. And that's what he loves about David. But we, as men, as human beings, we're impressed by what we can see, what we can measure. We want to catalogue everything and categorise it all so, you know, We look at the person who's at all the meetings and and never seems to do anything wrong and they're a great Christian. But God's looking at their heart where you can't see into. And He's looking at your heart too, not at what you do. You know, when Isaiah said, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, he was speaking to God's people, not to sinners, not to barbarians. He was speaking to Jewish people. And so we get into all of this thing, we memorize the scriptures, we, we're busy serving God, we, we attend all the meetings and we put all our effort in and it can all be seen and measured and God isn't even looking at it. You know all of this great stuff you've done as a Christian, there's no record of it in heaven. The miracles you've done or, or the nights of prayer you've, you've put in, no record of it in heaven because heaven is only looking at your heart. What's in your heart? And what he wants to do is he doesn't want to come in and indoctrinate you or or re-educate your mind. What he wants to do is come and change your heart because your heart is who you are. And when your heart is changed, you will become the Christian that you're supposed to be. When your heart is changed, you become a different person. You begin to see things differently. You begin to perceive and understand things differently. And we have so many programs in Christianity that are aimed at changing us, but most of them are aimed at educating your mind. A lot of our discipleship programs and everything, they're aimed at educating you, giving you information. But the Holy Spirit wants to come and touch your heart and change your heart. And I want to to share a little verse from Proverbs. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says this. It says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. And other versions say, guard your heart with all diligence for it is the wellspring of life. And the writer of Proverbs is, is saying, You know, the most important part of you is your heart. Look after it. Don't ignore it. Because everything that you experience in life, the way that you interpret life, the way you understand it, the way that you um, translate your life experiences, all comes through the prism of your heart. It all comes from here. And it's all determined by what condition your heart is in. You know, I lived out of my intellect and I didn't do a very good job of it. Because really, my intellect wasn't leading my life and driving my life, my heart was driving my life. And my heart was what caused me to make certain decisions. And the state of your heart will determine how you live your life, will determine the kind of Christianity that you pursue or that you live in. You know, I I have friends who paint and I can say to my friend, yeah, that's a really good painting, but it doesn't speak to me. And what he hears is, John thinks I'm a good artist, but, but that's, that is not on his wavelength. But I can say to another friend, yeah, it's a good painting, but it doesn't speak to me. And what she hears is, John thinks I'm a terrible artist. I didn't say that. You see, because uh, they're translating it through their hearts and through the condition of their hearts. And so you can say the same thing to two different people and it will be heard completely differently by those two people because of their life experience. Life experience has shaped their hearts to interpret things in a certain way. Because all of our hearts are conditioned differently. You know, I live my life in response to trauma. I, as I said, you know, by the time I was 10 years old I'd almost drowned twice. Um, I'd been sent away from home on a couple of occasions for various reasons. Um, I was held at knife point. By the time I was 17 I'd been stabbed, my ears sliced open, Um, lost all my teeth because I thought I could fight eight guys at once when I was drunk. 6 or 7 I could have handled but 8 was too many you know no <laughs> I'm teasing but and so so I lived my life in response to that trauma emotional trauma physical trauma and it was causing my decision making abilities to be a little bit off center <laughs> not because of the knowledge that I would acquired but because of the damage my heart had experienced. And we we don't realise the damage that happens to our hearts, we don't realise that what happens to us in the world has a heart level impact upon us. And we all live in different worlds because our hearts have each experienced and reacted in different ways to those experiences. You know if you've been brought up in in an environment so for instance, my, my dad was disabled. He was unable to provide for me, unable to look after me. You know, I brushed his teeth, I gave him a drink, I spoon fed him, all of those kind of things. And so when people were talking about God as a father, it meant nothing to me. Fathers don't do anything. They don't give you anything. They don't help you in any way. And so for God to be a father to me was meaningless and something to be ignored, rejected and I, I, I did that, Probably, I'll maybe talk about it at some point but for my wife her experience of, of, of being fathered by her dad was brilliant. He would come home from work on a Friday with chocolate for her and, and on Saturday he'd take her to the library and he'd take her to the football matches and take her to her, her grands and he did all kinds of things with her and so for her A dad is a wonderful person who gives you things and and spends time with you and completely different experiences. And so when we talk about God as a father within the church, we have all of that range of different reactions from my dad did nothing to my dad was violent and abusive to my dad was great. We have all of those reactions and probably in this room, we have that whole range of, of experiences of Of fathers from passive to to violent to good and the problem is a lot of people can't hear God speaking as a father because of the experience they had growing up I didn't for many many years For, for 20 years God was continually speaking to me about wanting to be my father and I continually ignored it you know I remember when I first became a Christian I came out of a very party lifestyle You know, I would get up at four or five in the afternoon out of bed. I'd go out to the pub, to the clubs, partying, drinking, using. Back home at four or five in the morning. You know, all that kind of lifestyle. And when I became a Christian, although I stopped the partying, the drugs and all that kind of stuff, my body was still in that way, (laughs) that rhythm of life. And so I would stay up at night just reading the Bible. And I read Matthew Chapter 23, verse 9, where it says, Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father who is in heaven. And I grew up in the Catholic Church, and you call the priest father. And so I immediately latched onto that. Do not call anyone on earth father. And I thought, yeah, God's saying Catholic Church is wrong, and then blah, 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 blah. I don't believe that now, but, but that's where I was at that time. And that's not what he was saying to me at all. He was saying to me, John, you have a father in heaven. Speaking about himself. But my heart had been so conditioned by the trauma of my life that I couldn't hear him saying that. That just was not on my uh, radar at all. God is a father. And so I completely missed it. And there were lots of incidents like that throughout my Christian life where I was just completely missing what he was saying about being a father to me because of the effect that life had had upon my heart. And sometimes we can't even articulate what's inside us. We can't find the language to explain what's going on and what's happening to us because we're not sure ourselves. But it's because of the state of our hearts. You know, and we've learned all these things about, you know, when I became a Christian, I wanted to be like Jesus. And people were very helpful in telling me how to be like Jesus. <laughs> Except it wasn't very helpful. Because what, this is what they would say to me. John, you have to do it. You have to change. You've got to do this. You've got to stop doing that. You have to start doing this. You have to develop these pattern habits. You have to develop these behaviours. You have to develop this character. And yet that's not what I read in Scripture. But I took that on board because that was how I had lived my life. I have to do it. I'm on my own. Very orphan kind of thinking. I'm on my own. No one's going to do it for me. I have to make it happen. And when I came into Christianity, I thought I had to do Christianity the same way. I had to make it happen. And so I would go to the prayer meetings. I would witness. I would... Uh, go to church services. I would be part of the prayer team. I would I would do all kinds of stuff. Seven days a week. But actually when we read the scriptures, this is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter two. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And so many of us spend our time looking for our purpose. What's my purpose? What's my You know, and we have this whole thing about destiny. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 what our purpose is. In chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Ah, there's that word purpose again. And then he goes on in verse 29 to tell us what the purpose is. He says, those whom God foreknew, he also Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. The purpose which is to can be conformed to the image of his son. Well, how does that work? What does that look like? Well, Paul, again, Paul really knew this whole thing. It, when you start to understand and see the breadth of his teaching and not just focus one thing. He had such a, a great understanding of who the Father is and, and what it was to become like Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter three, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we, unlike Moses with unveiled faces, we contemplate the Lord's glory. In other words, we, we ponder upon his beauty, his wonder, his grace towards us. And as we do that, we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord. Wow. Becoming like Jesus is sitting in the presence of God marvelling at how wonderful he is. (laughs) You know, like like worshipping and our hearts just open to him and he is transforming us. Paul even says You know, in Philippians chapter 1, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's great. God God does it. He completes it. But there's a catch. Because that's not the full quote. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So basically he's saying, you won't be fixed until Jesus comes back. But it's me that's going to do it. While we sit here right now, he is loving us. His love has been poured into our hearts. Whether our hearts can receive it or not is another matter. But as he does that, he is transforming us into Jesus' image, into the likeness with the same character as Jesus up with your personality I don't know if that's a good thought for you or a scary thought for you but it's just a fact (laughs) he is transforming you into the image of his son the more that you spend in his presence and in his company and in intimacy opening your heart to him becoming like Christ is something he does in, in you nothing we can do we can't change ourselves into something we're not the way your heart has been affected determines how you live your life and the kind of person you are and it's only by the transformation of your heart that the person you are can become someone else and that's why the writer in proverbs 4 says keep your heart diligently for from it spring the issues of life and we can you know we can change aspects of our behaviors through sheer willpower and determination But you know what happens when your willpower and your determination break down? You go back to your old ways of behaving. That's what happened with me. I would determine, I would fast and be really good for a period of time. But when my will runs out, my determination runs out, so does my ability to maintain that behaviour. And then... I'm no longer like Jesus. I've stopped being like Jesus because I can't maintain it. You know, I can make the right choices. You can do the things that you're supposed to do. But one day it will break down. Something happens in your world, a crisis hits and, and the real you comes out to say hello. You know, you might react very badly to someone and say, oh, I'm really sorry, that, that's, that's not me. That is you. That's the real you. All you've been doing up until then has been covering it up. Because Jesus said that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so whatever's coming out of you is because of what's in you. We often blame the devil when it's, when it's usually our own hearts. <laughs> Changing your actions will not change who you are. Those are just behaviours we adopt to make ourselves look better, to try and make ourselves more acceptable, kind of like Adam's fig leaves. You know, Adam put the fig leaves on to try and look better and more acceptable. And we do the same thing with our behaviours. We try to make ourselves look more acceptable. But the great thing is God is in the business of changing hearts. I mean, we even talk about that, don't we? I invited Jesus into my heart. If that's true, then why do we start then to live from our minds? (laughs) If it's our hearts. that he, You know, Paul says, Christ dwells in your hearts by faith, not in your minds. And when he changes our hearts, and it's a gradual process, I think the way Christianity has presented things to us, we expect it to happen like this. Snap of the fingers and and God waves a magic wand, you know, but it doesn't happen that way. It's a, it's a progress, it's a, a bit at a time. Hey guys. And as he does that, he conforms us to the image of his son. Nothing else is capable of doing that. No rules, no programs, no Christian ministry, no discipleship training or, or anything like that will make you like Christ. Only God reaching down into your heart with his love and transforming your heart can, att- can achieve that. Jesus was who he was. Jesus did the things he did because of the heart that was in him. You know, I, I mean, what did Jesus do to become the Jesus we read in the scriptures? <laughs> As he grew up. He didn't go on special training courses to become like Jesus. He just lived his life in relationship with his father in heaven and his mum and dad on earth. That's often a sticking point for a lot of us. It was for me. That was a heart issue for me. You know, my dad being disabled, dying when I was 11 years old. I didn't really know a dad. Uh, I guess that as a little boy, I blamed my mum for a lot of things. And so I had a heart issue with my, my, my human parents And that became an obstacle for relating to God because it's a heart issue. And I realized Jesus was the person he was because of the heart that was in him. And I began to understand that Christianity is not about how you act, it's not about. It's actually nothing to do with your behavior, it's all about your heart. And if we can come to a place where we allow the Lord to touch our hearts, to, to begin to connect with our hearts, we will find ourselves becoming different people in a way that ministry can't change you in the way that that programs and preaching and prayer can't help you. And all of those things are good things. You know, preaching is a great thing. Keep listening to preachers. If you don't, I'm out of a job. So poor Phil here. So keep listening to preachers. (laughs) No, but, you know, none of these things can really change you. They can point you in the direction of of what Father's doing, what, what he wants to do in your life. But ultimately, it's only he who can reach in and touch your heart and change your heart. And that will change who you are. And it's not, when we talk about the love of the Father, we're not talking about sentimental love. You know, we're not talking about fluffy clouds and, You know, someone someone said to me the other day, you know, God's not all about white picket fences and cotton cotton candy sofas. (laughs) But his purpose is to change your heart, to heal it, to fill it, to minister to your heart so that you become free. Like him, because God is totally free. The only restrictions upon God are the ones that he puts upon himself. You know, we, I used to think that memorising the Bible was how I changed myself. You know, Paul says, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I used to think, well, that's how you get transformed. That's how you get changed. But actually, when you read that passage in Proverbs 4, it starts in verse 20. And the writer says, my son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. And then goes on to say, guard your heart for from it flow the issues of life. He's not saying, memorize the scriptures, he's saying let it come to rest in your heart. And I I often think of it as drinking a good malt whiskey. You know, you see people on the television having whiskeys and they just throw it back like this. And, and that's not how you drink a good malt. You take a little bit at a time and you just swirl it around, let it swirl around your palate and your tongue until, and it releases all these flavours and sensations. And, it, and I think reading the scriptures is a bit like that. Just take a little bit and let it roll around in you. Ponder it. You know, we, we've got this thing that I need to read 10 chapters of the Bible today. Why? You've got a whole lifetime to read the Bible. And I find that trying to read all of those chapters, the Bible becomes meaningless. But if you take just a little bit and ponder it, spend time on it, it begins to release its flavor in you. It releases understanding in your heart. It releases life in your body. And I think that's a much more effective way to read the scriptures. And if it takes you your whole life to read the whole Bible, then great. Your understanding of it will be so much richer and deeper for doing it that way. It's not about cramming in information. It's about receiving life. That's the difference. You know, if you've been wounded in your life, the wound is in your heart. When you're offended, it's because your heart has been damaged and hurt. And it's a wound that stays there until it's healed. And I, I've been involved within inner healing for many, many years. And I, and we all, inner healing used to be a whole thing where you tried to identify the wounds in someone's life and then you'd pray through the issue and, and ask God to heal it. And, and that's quite time consuming and tedious. What I'm discovering and been discovering since 2005 is that if we can learn to open our hearts and allow his love to be poured into our hearts, you know, Romans five five says that Hope doesn't disappoint us because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. If we can learn to open our hearts to receive that love in a more meaningful way, we will find that the wounds of our hearts begin to get healed, incidentally. Because this is the thing I've come to, he's not interested in fixing me. God doesn't want to fix me. He wants to love me. But one of the side effects of being loved Is that your heart begins to get healed up. You become you begin to become more of a whole person. You begin to become more of the person that you're meant to be. And I've come to a place in his love where I like being me. And I couldn't always say that in my life. But I like being John MacDonald. I'm beginning to discover who he is and and he's not as bad as I thought he was. You know, when I was trying to do it all myself, when I was trying to live as a Christian, (laughs) I realized there was a lot of childish behavior in me because of this wounding in my heart. And I would determine I'm not going to behave like that the next time. I'm not going to react that way the next time. Guess what happened the next time? (laughs) I behaved that way and I reacted (coughs) that way because I can't override my heart. It's almost like your heart is your CPU if you understand computers. That's your CPU, you you can't buy it. Everything runs through that. (laughs) Everything of life runs through your heart and it's processed by your heart. But I'm discovering that as his love is poured into my heart, that heart that was starved and neglected of love throughout its life is beginning to understand what love is. You know, when I was first married, I, I was married in September 1986, and I was so damaged. I didn't know what love was. I didn't know how to respond to love or how to receive love. My wife would put her arms around me in bed in the, of an evening and I would freeze up and say, don't touch me. I was so damaged. I didn't know what to do with love. I couldn't handle love. Love touched the pain in my heart and that was too sore. And so the easiest thing to do was to reject love. And so I couldn't relate to God as a God of love because, well, what do I do with love? Love just causes me to hurt. (laughs) And so I learned to live Christianity (coughs) and not relationship with God. And I think so many of us have lived that way. We've learned to live Christianity, but not live relationship with God. But my heart has been receiving love over these last 10, 12 years. And those broken places, those bits of me that were twisted and scarred, they're beginning to be healed. And this isn't something that, you know, I want to reiterate, this is not something that happens overnight there's no such thing as a quick fix and the way he loves me is not how he's going to love you you know I used to think that God loves everyone equally I don't think that's biblical I don't believe that anymore he loves each one of us uniquely because the way your heart needs to be loved is not the same way my heart needs to be loved because your life experiences are not the same as mine your personality is not the same as mine. And so a lot of the childish behaviors are beginning to disappear. And I guess it's because I've been learning to open my heart. I think that's a major question for us. Can you open your heart? Because what happens is when we get wounded, we, we begin to put up with defenses, close down, we might be suspicious, KJ with other people. You know, what are they after? Why have they been nice to me? And we think we're just keeping out pain. Actually, we're keeping out life. And we're cutting off a flow of life to our heart. And what God wants to do in, in coming to us as a father is to begin to restore the flow of life to our hearts. That's what it means to be a father. Anybody can, anybody can biologically sire a child. But a father is someone who not only imparts life at conception but continues to impart life throughout the days of that child's years. And what God wants to do in, in coming as a father to us is to impart life to our hearts throughout the days of our time on earth. And loving us, he's imparting life to us, just like he imparted to Adam in the garden. And so when we're talking about this whole father heart of God, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about coming into a place of relationship where the father of our spirits is imparting life to us. You know, we sang the song, I Think You're Amazing, but I hear him tell me that regularly some of you do on a regular basis say John you're amazing and I found that really really difficult to receive when he started speaking to me that way I knew how to prophesy I heard the voice of God and all of that stuff <coughs> you know I've seen miracles I've seen legs grow I've seen people throw away walking sticks and Zimmer frames and all kinds of stuff and that's easy to cope with because it makes me look good But it was really difficult, and I was shocked at how difficult it was to hear him say, John, you're amazing. I was shocked at how uncomfortable that made me feel. You see, I'd grown up without any of those kinds of words. I'd grown up without any memory of being told I'm loved or being sat on someone's knee and adored. (laughs) I'm sure it happened when I was a little boy boy, with my my parents and my my grandparents, probably not my parents because Life was so chaotic for them, but with my granddad and stuff, I just have no memory of any of that because it's a a smaller part of my life. But he wants to come to you and bring life to your heart, that you might know that you are amazing, that you are wonderful, that you are fearfully and beautifully made and put together. And the way he does it is by coming and changing our hearts, by pouring love into our hearts, into the places where love has been denied, into the places where instead of love we received abuse or or violence, into the places of trauma and brokenness of of our lives that still are a part of our hearts, that still determine the way we live our lives. I'm not quite, I can't quite define what your heart is. The Bible says the heart is difficult to understand. For myself, you know, when, when you see something beautiful or something, a, a, a sunset or, a, or a, a, a painting or something that you just think, wow. Think, what, you know, think of the things that make you go, wow. See, that's your heart responding. It's your heart that's saying, wow. When beauty or, or magic touches you and you go, wow. Oh, you just, or you just feel that, oh, that's your heart being touched. And it's learning to live in that place of allowing our hearts to be touched constantly. Because what we've done, or what I have done over the years, is I've had moments like that where things have touched my heart, people have touched my heart, God has touched my heart, but then I've closed it up again. I've become cautious and safe and and managing everything around me which is really another word of saying being controlling but (laughs) we don't like to call ourselves that (laughs) and and now i'm learning to to live with my heart open to have more of those wow moments (laughs) where i experience life flowing and what happened what happens is when we learn to open our hearts that way we begin to live out of the life that we receive we begin to live in response to the love that's been poured into our hearts instead of the trauma that resides there. And that's what it means when perfect love casts out fear. It's not some theological or doctrinal um, chant. It's a reality of love being poured into our hearts, into our lives, that transforms our reactions, transforms the way we live, and fear no longer controls us. And that takes time. That takes time to come to that place. I would love to say I'm without fear, but I'm not. I'm still learning to keep my heart open and, and, and be loved. But I have less fear in my life now than I did previously. I react less to the trauma of, and, and of my past than I used to. I live more out of that place of being loved, out of that place of knowing that I'm amazing and that it's okay to be me than I ever did before. And we can learn to do loving things, but all we're doing is mimicking love You know, when Paul speaks in Corinthians about love being patient, love being kind, he's not saying that you have to adopt these things in order to become a good Christian. That's often how we approach the thing. I have to become this. I have to become patient. I have to become kind. I have to remember not to be rude. That's the one I always forget. But um, he's not saying this is a recipe for good Christianity. He's saying this is what will happen to you when love begins to take up residence in your heart you will become a kind person because you will be experiencing the kindness of God. In fact, he says in Romans two, isn't it? That it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. In other words, it's the experience in kindness that will transform you. The kindness of his love, the patience of his love. You know, you, God doesn't get mad when you screw up. Do you know why? Because love keeps no record of wrongs. <laughs> And you say, oh, God, I've done it again. And he says, done what again? Because he kept no record of your wrongs. And when love begins to take up residence within us, we start to live a life where we don't keep a record of other people's wrongs against us, where we find forgiveness so much easier because we start to live in that place of not keeping a record of wrongs. And I used to think about, you know, well, I have to get this from my head to my heart. Yeah, you you kind of had those conversations. But I've discovered there's no route, There's no road from the head to the heart. Because what we should be doing is living from the heart. And all the head does is begin to translate what is going on inside us. But we try to get, the, we try to do it the other way around. We get the information, and I have to get this information in here. It doesn't work. If you if you've lived life like me in any way whatsoever, you know that doesn't work for you. It just frustrates you. It just leads to disillusionment, disappointment, and then you think, well, what's the point of church? What's the point of reading my Bible? What's the point of praying? Because it doesn't work. <laughs> and you're right, it doesn't. Because it's not how we were created to live. We were created to live in a heart-to-heart relationship. And as we learn to open our hearts to him, it's so much easier for the Holy Spirit to share that love abroad in our hearts. A new life begins to spring forth. A new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing. That's how we come into the spiritual life and that's how we're supposed to live in the spiritual life. It's got nothing to do with what you are able to do or what you're not able to do. It's nothing to do with your intellectual ability because if that was true then people with impaired intellect could not know God. Someone with learning difficulties or, or downs or, or, or those kinds of mental impairments could not know God if it was based on intellectual ability. But actually I think some people in those cases know God a lot better than I do because they're not relying on their intellect, they're living from their hearts. And so they have such a pure understanding and and relationship with God. They get that he's he's their father because they're living in that heart connection could say so much more, but why don't we take a break? Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.